Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. From Luminary, this is British Villains. I mentioned in the first episode that I didn't really have any idea that my dad was a villain until I was almost an adult myself. The thing is, Even after I found out, nothing really changed for me. None of my friends' dads had robbed a train or done any time. They were just regular folk, leading regular suburban lives. So it wasn't until this podcast that I really started to think about how my dad's chosen career may have affected him, and my mum, my sisters, and me. Of course, it helped that my dad was never forced into the great train robbery spotlight. He never had TV crews chasing him around the globe. But more importantly, He didn't have any interest in book deals like the more famous members of the crew. But the great train robbery, the crime that took less than 30 minutes to execute, but resulted in a 40-year manhunt, the crime that defined a generation, the crime that impacted popular culture, everything that surrounded the robbery left a mark on everyone. I said, can I leave it here because I don't want my wife finding out about all my business. He said, all right. You know, that some people do, do make that money and, and do get away with it, uh, but not all of them do. Locked the gate, went in, and Heather said, oh, Carl's just pulled in the drive. I said, you see that man over there? He's not very nice. When my, you know, my dad got... 
25 years when they finally caught him. Nick Reynolds, son of Bruce Reynolds, the man the press coined mastermind of the great train robbery. To jog your memory, in 1963, a crew of villains stole around 80 to $100 million in today's money off a Royal Mail train. After some daring escapes and escapades around Europe and Mexico, almost all of them wound up serving brutally long prison sentences, including Nick's dad. And so I spent 10 years visiting him in prison, and he divorced, my mum divorced him quite early, so Terry was the guy that would drive me up. Terence Hogan, also known as Lucky Tell, another villain and friend of Bruce Reynolds. He was part of the big Heathrow job, but he pulled out of the train robbery. I'm going to go visit my dad in prison, so sometimes that would be a five-hour drive to Durham, and he'd sit in the car park because he wasn't allowed in, being an ex-felon himself. And, um... And, and drive me back, you know, he was, uh, he, he was great. Well, my name's Karen Hogan, and I suppose you could call myself the daughter of a bank robber, stroke cat burglar, stroke somebody part of British history, really, in the realms of crime. Karen Hogan is Lucky Tell's daughter. I met up with her in London, and we spent an eerie few hours discussing our childhoods. Both having villains as dads, we shared our stories and cross-referenced our similarities. Well, I was born in 1958, and for the first three years, my father wasn't around, which my mother told me he was ill and in a TB hospital. It was actually prison, so she would take me there. It'd be very confusing, you know, cups banging, screaming, swearing, and I thought, what kind of hospital is this? Is my dad okay? I was very naive. My mum was a devout Catholic and, uh, you know, I was taught to go and pray for some reason that my father would always be kept safe, but I didn't really know why. I'd never met Karen before we started working on this podcast, but as she talked, it was uncanny how alike our experiences had been. Like the fact that up until the age of 13, 14, I thought my dad was a car dealer. It was clear Karen had been kept in the dark as much as I had. Until her dad started the 12 steps, that is. It wasn't until I got into my teens that um, he actually revealed his background to me. Did he? He told you himself? Yeah, he'd he'd got alcohol problems and he went to AA and they said, look, fess up to everything, you know, clean your life up, be clean about everything. So we were in one of an MGB at the edge of Beachy Head after he picked me up from boarding school when I was 13. And then he said, you know, look, Karen, you think I'm a businessman, but in fact, you know, I'm a thief. Personally, I never really had that kind of talk with my dad. I just started to notice certain stuff was going on. You could say shifty at times. Well, my dad would work out before every crime. So we knew when he was a crime because he looked like an Adonis and then he looked like Marlon Brando in the later years, you know, when he wasn't working out before a crime. So I always knew when a crime was coming. Dad would be around the kind of people that he was around, pretty big, frightening people, but they were very, very gentle with me. But they all the time it was, don't trust anyone, Karen. And wherever I went to get a job, Dad would always come in and speak to the person who I worked for, get an idea of them. If you didn't like them, I didn't go back again, you know. One of them was in a bank, which was hilarious. So, I mean, 
part of me wanted to look around the bank, you know, for him and tell him about, you know, how it worked and things like that. And then I voluntarily left because it was too much of it, you know. This could go really badly for me. I have to say, I didn't ever see my dad lift weights before a job or at any time. But there was definitely something in the air when a job was around the corner. Lots of dropping off and picking up stuff. Lots of popping out and seeing a man about a dog. You know, that sort of thing. And of course, it wasn't hard to figure out who the heavies were when they appeared at the door. Well, you know, people you wouldn't like to meet on a dark night. I mean, you know, scars and big coats and things. And there was a thing in the garden. They were always in the garden digging. <laughs> and later my father said, look, the police don't like getting dirty when I found out what he did. Always bury things in the garden, yeah. you know. It's uh, interesting when my dad's house got raided, uh, after the train robbery, he had um, a coal box and he had cash all behind the coal and he had a key for Chancery Lane where they had hidden it in a safety deposit box and they ripped the whole house apart and the only place they didn't search was the coal box. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. They, yeah. they didn't want to get their hands yeah. dirty. The rest of the money was in a box with Christmas decorations at the neighbour's house he had asked to look after. So I was born after the Great Train Robbery. Before this podcast, most of what I'd learned about my dad's involvement came about from putting two and two together. Here's my dad finally telling me where he stashed his whack from the robbery. Funny enough, in the house next door. So you put it Bill, in the Christmas decorations and asked no, your neighbour... No, I put it in a trunk and I said, this is some old records and books of mine... And his wife had left him. I said, can I leave it here because I don't want my wife finding out about all my business. He said, all right. Again, my dad wasn't actually with the crew for the robbery, but he did help his old friend Buster Edwards skip town after the job. That's what he ended up doing time for, a two-year stretch shortly after my sister was born. The night the flying squad showed up at the house. That's a story both he and my mum remember well. It starts just as my dad was getting home one night. Locked the gate, went in, and Heather said, oh, Carl's just pulled in the drive. Remember Heather's my mum. Open the door. Oh, I'm Inspector Butler. This is Sergeant Slipper. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know why I'm here? Tommy Butler, former head of the flying squad. Jack Slipper was another investigator. Remember him? The one that lived with his mum? I said, I've no idea why you're here. Why are you here? He said, it's about your friend. I said, what friend? He said, well, Mr. Edwards. I said, oh, yeah, what about him? He said, can we come in? So I said, yeah, come in. Mind if you search the house? You search the house. You got a warrant? He said, well, do I need one? I said, well, most people would have a warrant, don't they? He said, do you want me to take you up the yard? Yard, meaning Scotland Yard. I said, all right, search the house. Heather had 500 quid on her. No great amount but I had some there. Here's Heather, my mum. When I knew, I said oh I've got to change the baby you know. She's talking about my older sister. They go ahead. There was no police women there, just those two and a couple of every mob. So I changed her by <laughs> stuck it in her nappy when I put it on. A diaper you would call it. <laughs> and put it in there. I put the money in there and I pinched her to make her cry. So it would take them away from any suspicion, you know. I said, oh, she's tired. 
And then I gave her a lollipop to, you know, stop her crying. And I went to, you see that man over there? I said, he's not very nice. Put your lolly on his jacket. And she did. On the policeman. Slipper's jacket, it was. Our family doesn't exactly love the police. I mean, I I don't remember it very well, though I'm told I was about three when I helped carry some black bags full of great train robbery money into the garage, you know. Yeah. It's quite funny to me. I think it's, you know, it's ironic now to, you know, how many children can say that, really. Today, Karen is a proper journalist. She's written about her dad and growing up as a daughter of a professional cat burglar. Well, it's just, I remember, you know, going back to Harrods, I actually stole something when I was about 10. I don't know what it was, like a paper, something or other. He saw me do it. And as we got to the door, he looked at me and he went, empty your pockets. And I went, no, 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 empty your pockets. And then he called the security and then the manager, you know, and he took them aside and they came over to me and said, you're going to jail. (laughs) You know, I was just about 10 or younger. Um, No, it was just, I got the talk and I never, ever stole anything ever again, you know. And so my, my dad, the thief, was telling me not to thief. I think my dad was driven by such a strong desire to not have his kids grow up and be like him and have to make the life choices he made. I think if he'd caught me stealing, he would have felt like he'd failed somehow. Well, did you live in fear, though, or did no, you feel protected? I felt quite protected. I, I mean, felt quite protected. Yes. Like, as I got older, like, it, 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 maybe it was just luck, but yeah. I used to think it was like a thing. I'd be in, like, the local pub, and if ever, ever there was a punch-up, it sort of just didn't come to me. It sort of went round me, and I was like, God, that's amazing. No one ever starts on me. They're like, And I just wondered, yeah. wondered if that was part of it or just because they thought I was tough which I wasn't yeah but you know because for me being a girl and and as a teenager my dad was very protective and I was quite pretty back then and you know if a boss laid a hand on me or something literally he you know you'd come back and the shop would be closed and you wouldn't see that man again yeah well until he came out of hospital and that you know gave you real gave me some form of you know wow my dad's really you know don't mess with him there's things you learn Growing up as a villain's kid, there are a few rules. The first and maybe the most important rule, never answer the fucking door. You know why you never answer the fucking door? Because no one ever shows up at your door to give you cash. Yes. Another rule, never speak to a fucking policeman. Never speak to a policeman, you know, ever. Toward the end of our interview, Karen told me one thing that really surprised me. Because when I was helping create Dud's wiki page with the wiki crime people who were really thorough, you know, they found that he had um, an unopened criminal file that couldn't be opened till 2045. So I rang a criminal barrister and said, what does that mean? And he said, 2045, it can only be for, like, witness protection, family protection. Wow. I'm never going to know, you know. Unbelievable. It's, it's such a shame. Unbelievable. And I can't, I can't unlock it. Really? They won't no. let you have access to it? Or? Well, it's in something to do with the great train robbery. Yeah. So that I even have the phone number. Wow. That's amazing. Spooky, yeah. So maybe her dad was more involved in the train robbery than we think. In their dotage, when they get older, when they get into their 60s and 70s, if they live that long, 
And they look back and they say, yeah, I've had all this money, I've had this property, I've had, you know, I lived in Spain, I lived here, I lived there, and oh, and by the way, I spent 20 years in prison. That's Dick Hobbs, a professor of sociology and criminology, who's made a career out of interviewing villains. And you're asking me, was it worth it? Most of them say, nah, probably not. Because those long years in prison um, probably don't make up for the fact that they had all of this. They miss their families, the families break up, the kids grow up and they don't see them, grandchildren come along and they don't see them. You know, these lives can be quite hard if they go wrong. They don't all go wrong. I mean, the guys that we don't know about, that we don't write books about and make films about, are out there sort of smoking big cigars and, and, and having a fine time. And they're there. You know, that some people do, do make that money and, and do get away with it. Uh, but not all of them do. And that's the threat. That's what stops all of us doing it, I think. That's what stops you and I going out and robbing a bank. Because if we get nicked, we're going away for 15 years, you know. And you're younger than me, but I've not got 15 years to spare. And I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Even if I thought I could get away with it, I, I wouldn't do it because I might not. And then you don't see your family and you're living in a cell. And it's tough. After the train robbery, a lot of the robbers became household names. Bruce Reynolds, Buster Edwards, Ronnie Biggs, Roy James. They are part of British folklore by now. There was a glamour attached to being a great train robber. Movies were made, books were written. But that didn't mean the villains' lives were easy going. At their peak, these 60s villains did get lots of money, did have amazing lives of the, you know, the holidays and the kind of the lifestyle and the big houses. At their peak, they did. But by the time they fade away, it's all gone. And they've spent chunks of their lives in prison. When I talk to people like Karen or Nick, kids of villains, they all seem to agree that crime had a pretty devastating effect on their family life. There is a price to be paid for everybody, and certainly villains are not the only ones who are absent dads. Uh, you know, uh, bankers, financiers, uh, dare I say academics, are not always at home when they should be. And, and they will go missing. I think the difference is that when uh, people like academics go missing, they're, they're not banged up in a cell with a guy called George who's um, got unfortunate habits. It's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's different. And it's quite ironic, actually, that for, for a lot of these, these villains, um, they don't want to get up in the morning and go to work, but actually the price they pay is the same as these kind of hard-working captains of industry in, term, in terms of the impact that it has on their, on their families. So uh, that's, that's a, a, a nice bit of irony there. Again, a lot of these, these criminal stories, not all of them, but a lot of these criminal stories, they don't end well. There's not a nice, tidy narrative where you say, well, they all lived happily ever after, because they, they, they don't. It doesn't work that way. Now, before we see where the train robbers ended up after prison, as your host, I feel it's my duty to talk about the most tragic outcome of the robbery. I'm talking about Bill Bowl. Remember, he was a friend of Roger Caudry, who happened to be there when Caudry was arrested right after the robbery. Caudry had attempted to rent a garage with some suspiciously large banknotes. His friend Billy Bowl was just along for the ride. I mean, I, I, th- I think 
It, it is now completely clear that Bill Bull was not one of the train robbers. And it has been clear, actually, for quite some time. Here's Nick Russell-Prevere again. The distress and legacy that has left his family and the misfortune that, that came to him personally and the fact that he died in prison, a convicted criminal, uh, a wrongly convicted criminal, it seems to me that the least that the justice system could do, really, is 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 to apologize and and there is some there is enormous merit in them saying look we we got it wrong and we are deeply sorry Cordry, you'll remember was part of the south coast raiders the firm who figured out how to get the train to stop by rigging the signals i don't think he knew that uh, roger Cordry had been involved in the train robbery he certainly knew he had some stolen money in his possession but anyway when they were arrested because they arrested together and they were they at the time they were arrested they were in possession of Roger Caudry's cut of the money, Bill. It was it was assumed that Bill Bull was one of the train robbers, and um, although I have to say that his profile and background was quite different from the others, and I think the police should have, and maybe they did realize that he didn't really fit. His face didn't really fit with the rest of the gang. Now, whether or not they were too busy doing other things or whether there was some deliberate plot to send an innocent man to prison, I mean, when you start thinking it in those terms, I don't believe the police want to send innocent people to prison. Even corrupt policemen don't want to send innocent people to prison. Bowles' insistence on his innocence did not sway the judge. Mr Justice Edmund Davies... Here's Davies' exact speech from the trial. William Gerald Bowe, you who are substantially the oldest of the accused have been convicted of conspiracy to rob the mail and of armed robbery itself. You've expressed no repentance for your wrongdoing. Indeed, you continue to assert your innocence, but you beg for mercy. I propose to extend to you some measure of mercy. Some measure of mercy amounted to a pair of concurrent sentences of 21 and 24 years. Bowl died in prison in 1970 from a brain tumour, protesting his innocence to the end. Maybe it's a, it's a sort of rather abstract thing, but I think it's important when things, particularly with, with uh, justice issues, if, 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 it's, if something goes wrong, um, then I think it is important to make it public. And in a way, that's something for the family, at least, to um, have... Uh, doesn't make things, doesn't bring Bill back, but, you know, it's important. It sort of kind of puts a, a wrong right to some degree or doesn't put it right, but it makes it better than it would have been otherwise. The only group of people who knew for sure that Bull was innocent were the train robbers. Any of them could have vouched for him at any point and confirm his innocence. The problem was they were all insisting on their innocence too. This is something I talked to Bruce Reynolds about, and he said, yeah, it was a terrible thing. You know, they sent him there, blah, blah, blah. And um, they, you know, they knew he was innocent or whatever. Uh, and also the fact that, um, well, my, my question was him, to him anyway was that, okay, so after uh, whoever, you know, the body, main body or any number of you were, were convicted and in prison, knowing that Bill Bull was convicted on the same basis and knowing that he was innocent, 
why did you not either independently or get together and and say to the authorities this this guy was not part of our team um and there wasn't really an answer to that and it makes me think the answer is they didn't care they were just thinking about themselves which i have to say is ultimately the nature of the thief thieves are at very least very selfish people We'll never know why they never spoke up. Bruce Reynolds is gone. Billy Bowl is gone. What's noticeable about the robbers is that it that they continue to live tough lives. That's Professor Hobbs again. You know, they committed this crime as a way out of austerity, out of bad times, out, out of, you know, the humdrum working class guys. That's not what they wanted, you know. They wanted the big cars and they wanted the houses and they wanted... They wanted all the goodies that were on offer. They, they wanted the big house. They wanted good schools for their kids. They wanted all of that. It certainly didn't work out for, for, for Bruce Reynolds. It didn't work out for Ronnie Biggs, although he was the, the bottom of the heap in many ways. He was just the tea boy. But he did have a, a good few years in the sunshine and the, the glamour of, uh, of Brazil. He got that at least. And, uh, and Buster Edwards, well, it just clearly didn't work out for him either. He died, he, you know, he died in, a, in a rather sad way. Buster Edwards, my dad's old mate. Buster, when he came out, couldn't handle it. What happened to Buster happened to other train robbers once they got out of prison. What happens generally to villains when the past catches up with them? I took him up to Hatton Garden. Because I was buying and selling stones then. And we're in the pub drinking, me, him and Terry. And I said, to, where's Buster? And he said, he's gone. Anyway, I went back to his flat. I said, what's the matter? He said, I'm all right. The very next day, he went to Harrods, big store in Knightsbridge, stole a pair of pliers and got nicked, sticking, got six months in prison. Came out, you all right? He said, well... He'd done his mind a bit. He said, yeah. I said, I'll tell you what, because he was a florist. He said, if I've got any money, I could buy a stall at Waterloo Station and become a florist. So, after prison, Buster became a florist. But he was broken. He was done. On November 28th, 1993, a friend found him, hanging from the rafters in a garage. He was 63 years old. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. But I remember being in Teltex when the Cray sent somebody to pick up their material. That's Karen again. We've talked about the Cray twins before, a pair of London villains from around the same period. Nasty bastards by all accounts, violent and ruthless. Dad was drunk. He was drinking heavily by then. He always smelt of um, Calvados apples. And um, they came for, you know... He got a real beating in the toilets and I was locked outside and I was screaming at them, you know. That was horrible. And then I thought this this crime that I thought was fantastic and was bringing us a lot of money in, I now saw as a big threat. Eventually, Karen's dad got sober. Still, his life of crime would continue to haunt him. He was terribly haunted right up to the day he died and, you know, he got, I think because of the of years of being a criminal and always using your mind, ticking over and keeping people on the run and hiding from money and hiding from police, hiding money, looking after his family. In the end, it seemed like he'd just broken down completely and didn't know where he was. He'd actually eventually ran out of money and was working as a minicab driver. And he was get lost taking people <laughs> to various places. He'd become disorientated and the whole family started to really worry about him. And then he told somebody in the minicab firm who he was and what he'd done. And they go, oh, you know, great tell Logan, you know, the great train robbery, look at him, he's a minicab driver, not so great now, are we? And he threw a few punches, he got sacked from every job, and that was the beginning of the decline, really. Karen's dad sadly killed himself in January 1995. So I think it was Buster's suicide that triggered my dad's suicide. Really? Yeah, they were yeah. so close. Yeah, yeah. he was, a, he was a, a, a lovely guy. And I remember when I was first started working in London, I used to walk past the flower store and Did see Buster. Yeah, all, give every, me, yeah, all the time. Oh, my God. What about the rest of them? Roy James tried to resurrect his racing career after he left prison, but he missed his window. And after a couple of failed races, he quit for good. His dashed dreams led him back into a life of crime. Eventually, he was sent back to prison after shooting his father-in-law during a row. There was no daring getaway this time. In fact, it was Roy who called the police. Roy died of heart failure while in prison. He was a crucial and rather romantic figure in the robbery. The man who had so much potential that was wasted for a chance at easy cash. In fact... It was Roy's fingerprints that allegedly were found at the farmhouse. He had removed his gloves to pour milk into a saucer 
to feed some feral kittens. Can you fucking imagine that? Charlie Wilson, or the silent one as he had become known during the trial. After being on the run and moving to Canada, Wilson was the last to leave prison. He then moved to the so-called Costa del Crime in Spain, a favourite destination for middle-aged villains. Wilson got involved with the new wave of criminal activity, drug smuggling. In 1990, after a deal went south, he was shot and killed by a rival drug company. Less excitement for Gordon Goody. While in prison, he learned to speak Spanish. After his release, he moved to Spain and opened a bar, where he lived out the rest of his life, eventually dying of emphysema a few years ago. Jack Mills, the train driver, just an ordinary working man. Apparently, he was never the same again, never drove a train after that night. In fact, he only lived another seven years after the robbery. It's hard to say whether it was the injury he received from the robbery that ultimately ended his life. But the trauma of that robbery clearly never left him. The 16 or so members of the crew embarked on this life of crime because they wanted to get ahead, get off the streets, get away from the misery of poverty and wartime austerity. Simply, give their families a better life, better than they had. All good reasons. But as my dad says, if you can't do the time, then don't do the crime. Look, I know it's a cliche, but it's spot on. But they knew what they were taking on with the robbery, risks and all. And for some of them, in the end, it was just too much to handle. And in many ways, I think it shows how how traditional they were. Although they presented themselves as, um, they often present themselves as outlaws and against the establishment and all this stuff. Far from it. They wanted all the goodies that were on offer. They, they wanted the big house. They wanted good schools for their kids. They wanted all of that. In Bruce Reynolds' case, who I think is the most fascinating man, he wanted, um, he wanted his son to go to public school and he wanted, he wanted all the things that were denied, if you like, to working class uh, Brits at, at, the, at the time. And yet, you know, he, he, it didn't work out. So your dad got 25 years. How long did he do? Ten and a half. This is Nick again, Bruce Reynolds' son. Well, it's funny. It's funny. I mean, this is really what kind of elevated um, the, the, the train robbers and gave them sort of like semi-mythological status was the sentencing. I mean, at the time um, when my dad was in the safe house and he was watching um, the sentences on telly come out, you know, he was absolutely horrified and he's oh my god they've just created a monster that will haunt them forever and if you think about it the train robbery um is the longest going criminal soap opera you know it's what it's 50 55 years is it 56 years 56 years you know and uh the media have made millions out of it and so is hollywood and, and everything else when your dad went away how, how 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 was that for you growing up do you, do you was that a do, do you remember having all these other people who would sort of look after you and keep an eye on you and did you have people you know it yeah. must have been well yeah i mean um terry was there the most i suppose he's talking about terry hogan karen's dad um and um i'd see some some of my dad's other associates um you know, that pop round and, 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 and check on us and stuff like that. But I got sent to boarding school. 
Uh, my mum then subsequently went on a series of nervous breakdowns, which kind of lasted sort of uh, for the rest of her life, sadly. Um, so it was tough for me because, uh, you know, that old that Jesuit saying, you know, give me a boy for seven years and I'll show you the man. Well, I'd spent more time with my dad, um, five and a half years on the run, really that intimate, than most kids probably actually spend with their whole teens, with their whole life up to their teens. So around when we was in Mexico, because we were there for three and a half years, I went to the uh, American school because there was a lot of American diplomats in Mexico and they had a school there for American kids. Um, so I suppose we'll call it a school. It would have been a kindergarten, wouldn't it? I, don't, I was only six then or something. And um, and I got but when I got sent to boarding school at eight. Uh, and in a similar way, you know, my dad had gone into a prison and I'd gone into a, a different kind of prison. And I reacted very badly. You know, I, I got into a lot of trouble. I was always, uh, c couldn't stand authority. So I was always very lippy and gobby um, with the teachers. But I had this big secret because I didn't tell anyone about it until I was, you know, well in my 20s, um, even in the Navy. In fact, they probably wouldn't have let me join if, if had they had known. So it, it was something that I'd kept quiet because in those days, it's not like today where it's almost, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but it's almost the equivalent of having a rock star for a dad. Back then when I was a kid, it was a bad thing. It's funny how things work out. As I said, this is a very unusual case because anyone listening to this would make it sound like we think it's all a bit of a laugh and, you know, and that crime pays. And, of course, there's there's a lot of tragedy associated with all of it. The price my mum paid was in and out of men's institutions for the rest of her life, you know, to which my dad felt guilty. So he dedicated his life to looking after her. She should have been in a mental hospital. Um, but after being locked up himself, because... You know, with with all the other robberies that my dad did, with time and with time he did in Borstal, by the time he was 51 years old, he'd spent 21 of those years in prison. When Nick said that, I thought back to something that Karen told me. When Bruce got out of prison, her dad was still alive, doing all right. He had a few quid in his pocket. He was the one helping Bruce out, giving him a place to stay, because that's the life. One minute you're on the up and up, Next minute, you're walking out of prison with a brown bag and a few belongings to your name. From what I saw, when Bruce came out, he was broken. And my dad took him out London. My dad still had a quite beautiful house. And it was like I saw something in Bruce's eyes that was, look how much I've missed. Their lives sort of changed a little bit after Bruce came out of prison. And things weren't quite the same. And... You know, Bruce went through some really rough times, unbelievable times. I mean, he he got beaten up by the police. You know, at the end, they thought, you know, and he... Oh, gosh, I don't want to actually talk about it, really, yeah. For Bruce, there'd be a book, fame, TV interviews, but also a wife who'd been traumatised and a family put through the ringer. Many career criminals get used to the rotating door of prison. They become institutionalised. For some, it's life on the outside that becomes too hard. Yeah, he was institutionalised. He told me, I could hear him crying in the bedroom next to mine at my dad's house in Ealing. And, you know, he told me that yeah, prison was actually a great life. He had a lot of mates. Somehow, you know, they swapped girlfriends' cars and things like that and, you know, phones and... And he always knew where the next meal was coming from, and he'd just become totally institutionalised. 
you know, he was certainly could have he could have been anything, but he just happened to fall on this particular path. So I always kind of knew if I had any bother, I could ring my dad and he could make a phone call and it would be sorted. Not not that that ever really kind of came around. And as I said, I didn't really talk to anybody about it until I was in my twenties. Of course, once I'd done that, then I realised there was another level to it because then I would see that people would treat me differently knowing that and would make assumptions about me, right. thinking that I might be that way as well or um, that, you know, I was involved with all kinds of dodgy people and I must be very dangerous and everything. So it was interesting to see how people reacted to me once they knew that. And, uh, yeah, I think it's definitely... Uh, affected me and has given me that you know for want of a better way of describing it a a a, a feeling of a, a sense of protection yeah like, like what, what you understand as well yeah. you know is uh, indeed but you i mean you've gone down a very creative path my dad shaped me um for the first thing was after visiting him you know 10 years in prison lesson number one don't go to fucking prison. <laughs> don't do don't don't do anything stupid. You know, after visit my dad in ten years, I suddenly thought, you know, crime does not pay in that respect. You know, and my dad made it very clear. Um, he had a wonderful, you know, golden roller coaster for five years, um, but then you know you pay the price for it all, and that that that, that message came through very very uh, very quickly. But. Um, he used to write the most incredible letters, even even though I didn't really understand them at the time. He would write to me as if I was an adult straight away when I was eight years old. And some of his letters could be four or five pages long. His, his writing was absolutely impeccable. He would change colour pens so I wouldn't get bored, so it kind of kept me interested. He would draw cartoons and he would tell have little jokes written at the bottom of the page. And he'd cut out um, interesting bits from magazines like mazes or you know, little quizzes or optical illusions, anything that would make things. But the one thing that really kind of shaped me, I think, was in every letter there'd be a postcard um, of a famous piece of art, and on the back of it he'd explain who did it, why they did it, what it was supposed to mean and to represent, um, and what particular artistic movement it belonged to. And uh, this obviously, you know, must have fired up something in my head. Um... So, you know, without doubt, he shaped me. That's great. I mean, it really is. Because here's the thing. Nick's lucky. I'm lucky. I mean, I'm fucking extremely lucky. And believe me, I know it. Because most people in this situation aren't lucky. Most kids with villains for dads, criminals for parents. That's probably a home full of violence, fear, broken marriages, broken families. For almost everybody, London, elsewhere, having a mum or dad who's a criminal is a fucking shitty hand to be dealt in life. The odd thing is, if you're listening to us talk, it's almost saying like it's a good thing to have criminal parents. Yeah, we're doing all right because in our, you know, crime paid dad did a bit of bird, but it weren't so bad, was it? Look at the life we've had. Um, I mean... These are very unusual cases. In my, in most, you know, most of my uh, associates, should I say, or the other children of the train robbery, don't look upon it as such a good time in their life. Um, it ruined their lives. And not necessarily just the train robbery. A lot of families that are involved with a dad going to prison. It was, it's been an absolute tragedy that has marked and scarred and blighted their lives and the countless generations after them. I think we were lucky um, by the sheer nature, perhaps, of our fathers that, as you said, he was up to no good, my dad was up to no good, but he wanted a different life for me and he did his absolute best 
um, to try to make sure that you know I, I I didn't I didn't follow in that thing. But obviously, I had a similar mind to him. Um, but I, <laughs> I I didn't want to do anything that would have meant risking my liberty for. And obviously, I think probably the same for yeah. you. You thought, well, why do that? Why take those chances? I was saying on that, yeah, you know, okay, I lost my dad on one level, but at the end of the day, I think I kind of came up out of it all right. Um, I, I can't say the same for the others, yeah. um, unfortunately. Yeah. You know. Next up on British Villains, with the 1970s and 1980s looming, a new wave of crime was emerging, which also meant a new wave of criminals. The Great Train Robbery would go down in history as the biggest and the most famous of its time, and the crew would be forever known as the robbers who almost got away with stealing the Queen's Royal Train. But it was time for the next generation of villains to take the reins, and these new villains didn't want to take a knife to a gunfight. Adjustments were needed. It was time for them to get tooled up. That's next time on British Villains. You'll have a crime family, and within every crime family, there's a head one. First wave of sentence robbers were getting 30 years. Well, the response to that is probably, well, in that case, I might as well carry a gun and do a, a shooting. That's where we do our work. This is where we earn our money. Do not come onto our patch and start selling your shit because we're not having it. From Luminary, British Villains is a production of The Cut, Ninth Planet Audio and Western Sound. Executive producers are William Green, Aaron Ginsberg, Jimmy Miller, Hans Sarney and Ben Adair. The show was written by Rosecrans Baldwin and Vanessa Sadler. Nick Reynolds and Edward Rose composed the theme. Music by Michael Cruz. Producers include Christina Moore, Annette Runhell and Stephanie Aguilar. The show was sound designed and engineered by Dan Leone. Up next, episode 11, The New Breed. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.